0: Mark uh, chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said... He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. and brother and sister. Why don't we pray? Loving Heavenly Father, come speak to us now through your word. Give us ears to hear, give us hearts that will understand, give us the courage to live in response to what you say to us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, it's about uh, 11 a.m. on the morning of Sunday, the 13th of June, I think three weeks ago this year, about the time that our morning service was finishing. One of the top trending hashtags on Twitter was Southgate out. And with rumours of a team sheet, including Raheem Sterling ahead of the much fancied uh, Jack Grealish, uh, plus right back Kieran Trippier uh, at left back and Calvin Phillips in midfield, Reactions started to flood in suggesting that Southgate was out of his depth, that England wasn't going to go very far. He didn't know what he was doing. Now, spoiler alert if you've been following the Euros or were planning to catch up sometime later, but, you know, seriously. But in three weeks since then, Gareth Southgate has taken England to the final and has received national and international acclaim from armchairs and experts alike. He's inspired endless memes, like the one I don't know if you've seen it of Southgate 2021 consoling 1996 Southgate um, after he'd missed his penalty, and he's prom- he's prompted Atomic Kitten to rewrite "You Can Make Me Whole Again." Um, surely the true hallmarks of greatness: uh, memes and your own dedicated pop rewrite. Win tonight. I think we can be fairly safely assured that Gareth Southgate will once again be taking the knee, this time in front of Queen Elizabeth, uh, Her Her Majesty. Arise, Sir Gareth. For those of you fed up to the back teeth with the football, then first, please just indulge the rest of us, just if only for one day. You know, second, hang in there, because believe it or not, I've got a serious point to make. Now that said... Gareth Southgate is not the Messiah and um, he's definitely not the son of God. That's Jesus. Um, and it's Jesus that I want to talk about this morning because he is the Messiah, he, the son of God. And if you've got your Bible or uh, an app on your phone, then please just turn to Mark chapter three. If you're joining us for the first time this morning or, or if you've been away first, you know, welcome. It's been great. It's great to have you with us um, Great, or great to have you back with us. We spent the last two months working through chapters one to three of Mark's gospel, looking as we do at Jesus's identity and priorities at the start of his earthly ministry. And we've been doing that in order to reflect on our identity and priorities as a church in this season, as we hopefully come out of it and move into a new season. We've seen Jesus... Coming onto the scene, words being spoken over him, that he is God's son, loved by his father before all things and anything else. This is who he is. And we've seen Jesus making space for time to be with his father in prayer. This is the basis for it all. And out of this comes this ministry based on bringing healing and wholeness and freedom to those who are sick and suffering and trapped and marginalized. So we're getting a sense of what's important to Jesus and recognizing that the same things need to be important to us. So healing and wholeness is important. Ministry to the trapped and the marginalized is important. We reflected on that a bit when we profiled the work of Liz Rhodes, our community projects manager and her team on the Ivy Bridge estate. That was at the six o'clock service a few weeks ago. I think you can still see the interview we did Uh, With Liz on on Facebook somewhere. But at the same time in the background. In Mark. We see that there's this sense. That this is not everything that Jesus has come to do. Ultimately yes. His kingdom is about one day. Seeing a total end to sickness. And suffering and pain and death. That's the Christian hope. It's a hope that goes beyond the hopes. Of the day. Today be that an end to a pandemic. Or indeed a first major International Championship in 55 years. Um, and that, that's big stuff, the, the big picture hope stuff. We'll look at that more next Sunday. But Jesus is not just going to, uh, you know, he's not just here to set up a medical practice and spend the next three years seeing patients until every need is met. Uh, he's on a bigger mission to that ultimate goal, securing salvation and hope for a broken and fallen world, a world that we all live in, and which we are all too aware of the pain and suffering and mess. So, picking up where we left off, Jesus talking about Sabbath and rest, and starting to get into trouble with the religious leaders. We're skipping over a couple of sections. First, uh, the crowds following Jesus, so his growing fan base, if you like. Second, Jesus selecting his matchday team. Of 12 apprentices, a.k.a. disciples. That's what we see in verses 7 to 19. So essentially in current metaphor, Jesus is now where Gareth Southgate was after his victory, uh, the England victory against Germany. He knows his best team and the tide of popular opinion is with him. You know, after that um, opening game against Croatia, Gareth Southgate was asked about his controversial selections and he said that while he appreciated his selections had been vindicated, he was only too aware that if people had failed, uh, if England had failed to beat Croatia, people would have been calling for his head. Popular opinion is so fickle. Hashtag Southgate out. And in today's reading, we are seeing the first signs really of public tide on of opinion turning against Jesus. Um, again, spoiler, you know, where we're heading is in the moment just a few years down the road. Where Jesus is brought out in front of the crowds by the hated Roman occupiers and the people bay for his execution. This is verses 20 to 21. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Now, this is a bad sign. Jesus's own family are questioning his sanity. Now, bear in mind, if you are Mark or the early church pulling these accounts together, you may have been tempted to leave that bit out. It doesn't look good, does it, to have Jesus's own family questioning him? The religious leaders go a step further. This is verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, i.e. Satan. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Wow. So Jesus is mad. No, he's worse than mad. He's evil. Who said that cancel culture was anything new? Hashtag Jesus out. Jesus' response is actually quite measured. He gently points out the massive hole in their argument. If he is a man possessed, doing the work of Satan, why would he be setting people free from demonic oppression? It just makes no sense. Be like saying that. Harry Kane was working for Denmark on Wednesday evening, despite scoring against them, um, You know, although there were question marks, perhaps over that uncharacteristically awful penalty. But he, he scored the rebound, didn't he? So we're okay. Next, verses 28, 29, comes a verse that has troubled people throughout history. The, the idea that there is this unforgivable sin, the sin of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. I think Jesus' point really is simply just if you call him evil then you are just so completely on the wrong track and it's a track to a very bad place you're writing off God as evil what comes to mind is the people who get those conspiracy theories stuck in their mind like the idea that the coronavirus vaccine is somehow a sort of cooked up um, by a secret club of ultra-wealthy tech giants to enslave and track us, you know, as if we haven't already given them that freedom anyway by buying and using their phones. Once people have this conspiracy theory idea in their heads, every bit of evidence they hear is twisted in that direction. And Jesus was just saying, if he is serving Satan's kingdom, then you are so very much mistaken. And it's, it's really hard to see What will change your mind when you're calling good evil? So ultimately, if you're a Christian, if you love Jesus and you don't think that Jesus is Satan in disguise, then you are not at risk of committing the unforgivable sin. And Jesus returns to the theme of family. Now, even in our time in the West, where family is not actually as of great a significance as it is in most of the world at most times, what Jesus says here is shocking to us. And actually, I think it forms the basis for today's takeaway. Jesus's mother and brothers show up outside the house. The message is passed through the crowd. Jesus, your folks are here. Time to go. Jesus asks rhetorically, Verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers? Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Wow, what a slap in the face. First, what is Jesus not saying here? I don't think he's saying he doesn't love his biological family, despite them saying uh, at this point that he, they think he's gone mad. Um, you know, the evidence later in the Gospels, the role of his brothers in the early church under vicious persecution would suggest that Jesus' family relationships were pretty good and his family were very, very loyal to him to the to the point of death. Another thing I don't think Jesus is saying is that family doesn't matter. Um, you know, he says some really challenging stuff about family elsewhere, but I don't think that's his point here. What he's doing is illustrating a point about his followers and their identity and unity based on the strongest possible social example of that day the family was everything to first century jews genealogies and and family identity was a really big deal you know think um, who do you think you are on steroids everybody knew where they come from who they were what family they belonged to going back generations. So what Jesus was explaining really was that the identity for all who would follow him and be his disciples was really an identity that was stronger even than blood relations. A while ago, a friend of mine preached a a sermon during a baptism and he entitled the talk, Water is Thicker Than Blood. His point was that when Jesus is your Lord, That comes above and beyond all other identities we have. Occupation, family, hobbies, capabilities, race, gender, sexual desires, football allegiances, political opinions. Being a follower of Jesus comes above all of that. Jesus was at the start of a process that was going to create a whole new kind of humanity, a whole new kind of community, a kind of family with a bond stronger than anything else known in human relationship. That's the story of the New Testament. A bunch of historically very divided peoples, not least around racial identity, being brought into one unified family, each member to be treated with love. And honour. It's the story of the church today as well. And the focus of that identity is Jesus. As the church, as his church, our identity, our unity is in Jesus. And Jesus alone. You know, everyone loves moment of unity, don't they? Um, It's one of the things that gets pinned onto sporting success. Who can forget the London 2012 Olympics and all that meant to the nation, or winning the Rugby World Cup in 2003, or the Men's Cricket World Cup in 2019, or when the women beat them to that in 2018? If England win tonight, there will be a shared identity of rejoicing and pride. If they don't win Chances are, not immediately, but somewhere down the line, we'll get back to Southgate out. The haters will emerge. In fact, even if we do win, I'd just like to suggest that we'll probably end up here at some point as well. Sorry if this is a little bit pessimistic in the moment. I'm sure we'll do fine. But this moment will pass. Whatever the result tonight, that moment will pass. Pass. Come September, fans who have cheered on England together at Wembley tonight will be spitting insults at each other on the terraces. And that's, you know, on the club terraces when they support different teams. And that's what I think it can feel like a little bit in the church sometimes. I don't mean uh, all souls particularly, I mean the church nationally and globally When I talk about the Christian unity being something deeper than biological family, you may find yourself finding that hard to believe on the evidence. The church as a whole faces all sorts of of challenges. Arguably, it always has done. The founders were all executed for a start. We read about divisions among its leaders in the early formative years in the New Testament. The New Testament tells us about that. But it never stopped them believing, different as they were, and despite some fairly radical contrasts in their thinking, that they were one. Because Jesus was their Lord. And we are a gloriously diverse bunch of people with all sorts of different gifts and abilities and opinions and perspectives. But we are united as broken people in need of God's grace given to us. Freely through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing else can really hold us together, not for long anyway. Tournaments come, tournaments go. Jesus is our unity. In life and death, and pain and suffering, and pandemics, and economic and social meltdown, Jesus is our unity. In disagreements and conflict, over any issue under the sun that you care to mention, Jesus is our unity. As we seek the way forward as a church and start to prayerfully consider our vision and strategy for the years ahead, Jesus is our vision. There is no other way. That's the message of Mark 1 to 3, I think. And when the crowd sing his praises, saying, Jesus, you can make us whole again. And when they are crying, crucify him. Jesus is our unity. We are his family. We are his brothers and sisters. The rest is detail and will pass. And whether or not football comes home tonight, Jesus will forever be our home. And his mission is always To bring us home to him. And our mission is his mission. To bring people home to him. Let's pray. Maybe you just want to take a moment in the stillness to reaffirm your identity as a disciple of Jesus as his child, beloved by him, beyond all other identities you have. And Father, we thank you that your church is one. We are one body, filled with one spirit, with one Lord, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you keep him at the head of all we do and all that we are so that we may glorify you and serve your purposes and your mission to this world as your church of all souls. Amen.